This is Rusty Reno at First Things, and welcome to the Editor's Desk podcast. I'm delighted to have Robert P. George, professor at Princeton University, with us to talk about his discussion of the upcoming Dobbs case before the Supreme Court. And uh, so I'm not remiss. I'd like to thank our sponsor for this podcast, the Center for Autism Assertiveness and Social Skills Counseling and Coaching Services. More info can be found at theautismexpert.com. Well, with that out of the way, Robbie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Rusty. It's a pleasure to be on with you. Uh, it was just great to have your voice in this symposium we did on the fate of Roe. Um, and you provided the lead discussion of the case and why you think Roe will go. <laughs> and you made the bold prediction that the justices will, in fact, overturn Roe. So maybe for our listeners, could you just sort of spell out what is the bankruptcy of Roe? The constitutional bankruptcy of Roe versus Wade, which was handed down in 1973, so we're talking about 48 years ago, is that there is simply nothing in the text or the logic of its provisions or its structure or the original understanding of the Constitution or any of its provisions that supports the idea that there is a constitutional right to abortion at all. The court in 1973, in an opinion by Justice Blackmun, purported to find such a right uh, in the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment, which simply says that no state shall deny any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, which pretty straightforwardly and centrally means that you can't execute someone, that is, uh, deprive them of life. You can't put someone in jail or prison, deprive them of liberty, or subject someone to a monetary fine or forfeiture without giving him or her a fair trial. And there's a tradition going back into the English common law, which we inherited here in the United States, that enables us to understand what a fair trial means. It means, for example, that you have the presumption of innocence. That's not explicitly written into the Constitution, but it's part of the historical heritage, the very idea of due process. Uh, it additionally means that the prosecutor and the judge have to be two separate people. <laughs> You don't have a fair trial. You don't have due process. If the prosecutor prosecuting you is the same guy who is presiding at the trial, the judge, and uh, so forth, there's certainly nothing in the concept of due process that could uh, conceivably anchor the idea that someone has the right to kill a child in the womb at any uh, time. So that's the, the constitutional bankruptcy of Roe. Of course, the moral bankruptcy goes beyond the fundamental violation of constitutional principle to the deep injustice of subjecting an entire class of people, unborn children, to lethal violence, to treating that class of persons as if they are worthless, non-human, nothing. Unfortunately, Rusty, this is not the first time in our national history we have done this, nor is it the first time that the Supreme Court has claimed to find a right to do that in the Constitution. In perhaps its most infamous decision in 1857, 
the Supreme Court of the United States, in an opinion by the then Chief Justice, Roger Brooke Taney, held that African Americans are not citizens, cannot be citizens, that Congress lacks any authority to restrict or prohibit slavery in the federal territories. Once again, reading into the Constitution the idea that an entire class of persons, black people, African Americans, uh, are nothing, are nobody, uh, essentially non-persons. They, they, did, they didn't draw that conclusion. They said non-citizens, but non-persons in the sense of having no dignity, having no uh, rights. In fact, for all the world, the closest opinion in the court's history uh, in terms of constitutional bankruptcy and moral bankruptcy to Roe versus Wade is Dred Scott against Sanford. We have in the same symposium a very powerful piece by Daryl Paul. And Daryl doesn't speak to the analog of Dred Scott, but it's the same theme. He looks at John C. Calhoun. And Calhoun shifted from an argument about tolerating slavery to the argument about its positive good, that the freedom of the white man depended upon the enslavement of the black man. And he makes it, Daryl makes a very chilling observation that this is what the argument celebrating abortion is among the most radical advocates of abortion. Women cannot be free unless the children in the womb can be killed. And uh, I remember I read that when he submitted it and just sent chills down my spine that our society is in that same place now with respect to the unborn that it was with respect to enslaved African-Americans. Uh, Rusty, Professor Paul is absolutely right uh, to draw that parallel. At the time of the American founding, the opinion generally held, even by those founders who supported the institution of slavery, was that slavery was a necessary evil. Necessary, but evil. And it was the hope of those founders, even some who were themselves slaveholders, like Jefferson and Washington, but who knew it was fundamentally wrong. It was their hope that uh, slavery would be put on the path to extinction, that as economic progress was made, technological progress was made, social progress was made. This institution, this evil institution that we were stuck with and couldn't get rid of and were dependent on, this necessary evil would eventually be extinguished. Then, Rusty, in the 19th century, as time went on, the defense of slavery shifted from the idea that it was a necessary evil to the idea held by Calhoun, for example, as Professor Paul points out, that it's actually a positive good for precisely mm. the reason that uh, that you uh, have uh, articulated, uh, recalling Professor Paul's words. Uh, and that is that the freedom of the white man depends on the slavery of the black man. Well, we have an exact parallel. You and I are both old enough to remember the original arguments for abortion Back in the late 1960s, when states like New York and Colorado and California began to, mm. quote, liberalize the laws. This was before Roe versus Wade, the first movement toward abortion. The idea there was abortion is a necessary evil. It's not that tragic it's a good situation. Thing. Tragic situation, yes. severe fetal deformity. Remember the case of the romper room uh, mm -hmm. host, the woman who 
allegedly was carrying a child with grave deformity and would die immediately anyway and so forth. And, you know, she needed to have an abortion because it was a tragic situation. Um, uh, And this is how it was sold originally uh, to the American people. And some bought it. Um, But it wasn't long before we got that same transformation from the idea that this thing is a necessary evil to the idea that it's actually a positive good, that the the freedom of women, the equality of women, the dignity of women depends on women having uh, the right to subject uh, their unborn babies to lethal violence. And there's just something fundamentally wrong about that idea of pitting uh, the dignity of one class of human beings against the dignity of another class, Mm. saying there's a zero-sum game here. Either I can kill you or I am uh, being harmed. I am being uh, violated. Um, This is the wisdom in the concept, the moral concept, that we should love them both. Uh, This was taught to us by Mother Teresa of Calcutta and so many great pro-life heroes. We simply refuse to pit the interests, much less the rights, of the child against the interests or rights of the the mother. We see them as united. We love both. And and that means that we recognize that women are sometimes in very difficult positions, that, that pregnancies can uh, present serious, serious problems uh, to uh, women for economic reasons, for personal and social reasons, and so forth. We do not abandon women. We don't take a kind of hard-nosed uh, approach to the thing that says, well, you got yourself into this jam. It's your fault. Mm. Uh, you know, you don't come asking for any care for us. No, quite the opposite. We need to reach out with care, concern, with love. Again, this is Mother Teresa's message. As I think you know, Rusty, I had the great honor, greatest honor of my life was to represent her as counsel of record in her 1994 brief to the Supreme Court, asking the court all the way back then to reverse Roe versus Wade. And this was her message, reach out in love to both mother and child. Hmm. What is it about the Dobbs case that makes it so difficult for the court to fudge and kind of do its usual on the one hand, on the other hand, on the third hand, on the fourth hand, on the fifth hand <laughs> approach? Yeah. In other words, why, why can't they, why, why do you think they're not really going to be able to adopt, to dodge the central holding of Roe, either yay or nay? Well, Rusty, I'll have to get just a little bit into the weeds of the Roe case to answer your question, but it's an important question, and I think it's therefore uh, worth getting into the weeds a bit. In the essay, uh, Roe Will Go, that you kindly published and featured in First Things, uh, I began by saying that I'm allowing myself no face-saving room here, no (laughs) face-saving exit possibility. I'm going to predict uh, that the Supreme Court in the Dobbs case which will be argued on December 1st, uh, probably handed down sometime in the uh, next year. Uh, I'm going to uh, predict that the court will, in fact, reverse Roe versus Wade after 48 years. After many false uh, uh, starts, the court is going to reverse Roe versus Wade. And in fact, even more boldly, I predicted that it would do so by a vote of, uh, of six to three. So you're right to demand that I express that myself. Bold. That's bold. That bold. <laughs> <laughs> and as you say, uh, the, from your lips to God's ears, <laughs> as you say, the Supreme Court has so often in the past hinted that it was uh, about to reconsider Roe and then backed away and then backed away mm-hmm. most most prominently and famously in the Casey decision, Planned Parenthood against Casey in the uh, early 1990s. 
So uh, obviously the question is, why is this different? What's different now? What's causing you, Robbie, to make this bold uh, prediction, giving yourself no face-saving exit? Uh, well, here we go. So the central holding in Roe versus Wade, which was affirmed in Planned Parenthood against Casey, is that there is a constitutional right to abortion that cannot be in any way restricted prior to fetal viability. That is the point at which the fetus, the child in the womb, uh, can survive outside the mother's body. Now that is a technologically dependent standard. Uh, the point at which a child can survive outside uh, his or her mom's body uh, depends on the state of technology. And of course, technology keeps moving forward. In right, 73, it's, it's, when Roe was- Yeah, uh, right. it's come down quite a bit. Yeah, so, well, in 73, when Roe was handed down, yeah, it was about 24 weeks. So the court said, you know, for the first two trimesters, there can be no significant restrictions on abortion for the sake of protecting fetal life. You could have restrictions for the sake of protecting maternal health, especially in the second trimester, but not for the sake of protecting fetal life. And that's now shifted back. Um, uh, so perhaps as early as 22 weeks, there have been some miraculous rescues of babies born uh, uh, that early. Um, the Dobbs decision concerns a Mississippi statute which prohibits elective abortion, that is a, a, a abortion that's not uh, uh, indicated by uh, the need to protect the health of the, or life of the mother. Um, Dobbs, the, the statute in Dobbs restricts abortion after 15 weeks gestation. So any way you look at it, Rusty, even with the progress that has been made technologically, even with viability shifting back from 24 weeks, 50 years ago to 22 weeks uh, today, and it may shift back still further, but we're not yet close to 15 weeks, which means that the statute directly contradicts Roe versus Wade. To uphold the statute, you have to cut the holding of Roe versus Wade completely out. All right, now next step, since we're in the weeds now. <laughs> the Supreme Court could have avoided this case. It could have dodged it. It could have left a lower court ruling uh, uh, invalidating the statute in place and not said a word. That's how, the, that's how the procedures work. And this is characteristically what the court has done in the past. But it took the case. Now, there's only one reason to take that case, Rusty. And that is if you're serious about upholding the law. So I think most commentators agree with this part of my analysis, what I'm about to say, which is it is very likely the Supreme Court has signaled that it's going to uphold this Mississippi statute. But if it upholds the Mississippi statute, it cannot reaffirm Roe versus Wade because of that gap between the point of viability today, 22, 23 weeks, and the 15-week prohibition. So if I'm reading the tea leaves correctly, the court has finally decided Roe versus Wade has been nothing but a catastrophe from the start, obviously a catastrophe for unborn babies. It's a catastrophe for society. It's a catastrophe for constitutional law. It has corrupted our constitutional law. It keeps coming back. It won't go away. Every time there's a new regulation on abortion, it has to be 
litigated. The Supreme Court gets into the muck with the, uh, with the issue. Uh, the best the Supreme Court has ever been able to do in trying to come up with some principled standard uh, for evaluating restrictions on abortion within the framework of Roe versus Wade is to say that, well, a law needs to be struck down if it imposes an undue burden, but the law can be upheld if it doesn't impose an undue burden. So a, a, a waiting period before a woman has an abortion, the court says that doesn't impose an undue burden, the need to identify the father of the child. Well, that does impose the undue burden. But in the effort to find a principled standard, of course, it's come up with an utterly unprincipled standard with no standard (laughs) at all. No one knows uh, until the court rules in any particular uh, case whether the court will or won't find an undue standard because nobody, including the justices, has been able to ascribe any objective meaning to the idea of an undue burden. All right. So that's a very good reason for the court to get out of this business, which it never should have been in in the first place, because there was not any basis for the so-called right to abortion in the text or logic or structure or original understanding of the Constitution. So now, why do I think it will be 6-3? I think most commentators can just about count five votes. Justice Thomas, the senior most justice, of course, Justice Alito, Justice Gorsuch, Justice Kavanaugh, Justice Barrett, the most recent uh, addition to the court. All of these justices identify themselves as originalists. That is, they believe that you shouldn't just make stuff up in the name of the Constitution. You have to find it in the original public meaning of the provisions of the Constitution for it to actually be there. Uh, they believe in judicial restraint, that judges should not legislate from the bench. So you can just about count five. And also, wouldn't you say that we have good reason to believe that those individuals also have deep misgivings about the practice of abortion? Uh, yeah, uh, we certainly... I mean, uh, some, I think, yeah. probably very clearly have uh, um, regarded as immoral, but even those who are ambivalent would would hold that it's... A, they would have a deep ambivalence and feel like this is not a good thing. Yeah, I think that's probably right. I, uh, Justice Kavanaugh is the one of them that I don't know personally, nor do I know his um, thought all that mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so beyond um, knowing that he identifies himself as a, as a strict originalist, as a principled originalist, I can't say much. But I know the other four, and I certainly know their work, uh, their jurisprudence uh, uh, quite well. Uh, so I'm I'm very confident there, but I think Justice mm-hmm. Kavanaugh's originalism will lead him to vote with the majority to overturn. That Roe leaves the mystery Trump. man. That leaves the mystery man, Chief Justice John <laughs> Roberts. Yes. Now, can I take you down into the procedural weeds of judicial politics of Supreme Court politics? Uh, for uh, listeners who aren't lawyers or don't know the uh, procedures, when the Chief Justice is in the majority in a ruling. He decides who writes the opinion for the court. Mm -hmm. He can write it himself. He can keep it for himself, as Chief Justice Roberts famously did in the Sebelius case, the, the Obamacare case, or he can assign it to one of the other justices in the majority. If, however, the uh, chief justices in the uh, minority 
then the senior most justice in the majority assigns the opinion. Now, what happens if the chief justice, in this case, John Roberts, would um, refuse to go along with five other justices who want to overturn Roe? So what happens if Chief Justice Roberts goes into dissent? That means that Justice Clarence Thomas, as the senior most justice in the majority, decides who write the who writes the opinion. Now it's entirely possible that Justice Thomas uh, uh, would assign this opinion or offer this opinion to Justice Amy Coney Barrett. That's a possibility. But a strong possibility, and perhaps a more likely one, is that he would keep the decision for himself, keep the opinion for himself, that he would choose himself to write the opinion of the court, which would be entirely within his rights if he was the senior most justice in the majority and the chief justice were in dissent. In which case, Chief Justice Roberts has to know, I know it's in his mind, uh, must be. In that case, he is looking at a barn burner of an opinion mm -hmm. by Justice Clarence Thomas, the only African-American justice on the court, saying that this tragedy of Roe versus Wade is indeed on a par with the worst, most horrible, most unjust, constitutionally illegitimate uh, cases in the history of the court, and cases involving race would be right at the top of the agenda. Justice Thomas would compare the decision with Dred Scott against Sanford, which we talked about a few minutes, moments ago, with Plessy versus Ferguson upholding state-imposed, state-sanctioned segregation, uh, with uh, Buck versus Bell, the famous eugenics uh, mm. uh, case, uh, with Korematsu, the case uh, uh, upholding the internment of... Um, uh, Japanese and Japanese-American uh, civilians uh, during World War II by the Roosevelt uh, administration. Infamous cases, cases of historical injustice and constitutional um, um, in illegitimacy. And if I know Chief Justice Roberts, if I'm reading him correctly, if Roe is going to go down, if it's going to be reversed, and I know that he believes it should never have been handed down in the first place. If, if he has a hang-up about reversing it, it's, it's, it's based on precedent, not on the original legitimacy of the opinion. But if I'm reading Chief Justice Roberts correctly, the last thing he wants, the last thing he thinks is in the court's interest is to have a barn burner of an opinion by the only <laughs> black justice on the court invoking, recalling Dred Scott against Sanford, uh, uh, Plessy against Ferguson, Korematsu, Buck versus Bell, these opinions that have disgraced the court. I think that the Chief Justice would far rather see, in an opinion reversing Roe, a modest, um, understated opinion, one that did not rile everybody uh, up. One that seems that, to be uh, calmed his the waters. Yeah, uh, and and we know, we do know that Chief Justice Roberts, he said so himself, places a lot of stock in um, maintaining and cultivating the court's reputation and the court's standing in in, in the public eye. So stronger... he, he's famously said judges are supposed to call balls and strikes. So he likes to keep things 
understated, low key, uh, just the umpires, you know, don't look at us, look at, look at, you know, the famous pitchers and the famous batters. We're just the guys in the background calling the balls and strikes. Uh, so, so that's why I, I think that uh, Chief Justice Roberts, if there are five votes anyway to reverse, will think it's in his interest and in the interest of the court, in the interest of the jurisprudence he represents to join the majority, keep the opinion for himself and write a modest one. Hmm. You submitted an amicus brief with John Finnis upping the ante and making overturning Roe the moderate halfway position. What 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 would what was the argument of that that brief? Because it it if it does reprise some of the arguments that he made in the article that he published in First Things Magazine. Yes, uh, Professor Finnis of Oxford, uh, one of the most distinguished scholars in the world, uh, certainly the most distinguished uh, scholar of jurisprudence in the world, a uh, longtime professor at uh, Oxford University, where he, as it happens, was my doctoral supervisor and also professor for the last uh, 20 or 25 years. At the same time, uh, at the University of Notre Dame, he held an appointment at both universities, at Oxford University and at uh, Notre Dame's uh, law school. Professor Finnis and I uh, decided uh, it was important to look into the question of what the original understanding of the term person was at the time the 14th Amendment was framed. Uh, your listeners need to know, Rusty, that the 14th Amendment includes uh, two uh, provisions known as the Due Process and Equal Protection Clause clauses that uh, are there to protect, to ensure that states protect and honor the rights of persons. I talked a bit about the due process clause earlier. Mm -hmm. The equal protection clause says that no state shall deny any person the equal protection of the laws. Roe itself, in the opinion by Justice Blackmun, all the way back in 1973, near the beginning of the opinion, said if the unborn are persons for constitutional purposes, then, of course, there can't be a right to abortion. On the contrary, their rights are protected and states must protect them. States cannot permit uh, elective abortion. It would be a different situation, different argument, uh, different considerations where, uh, you know, you have a pregnancy that's threatening the life of the mother or threatening severe harm to the mother and so forth. But by elective abortions, we mean abortions that are chosen, uh, not, uh, and for reasons that have nothing to do with uh, uh, maternal uh, health, at least in the normal sense of people mean by health. Um, but he said, of course, uh, famously, uh, he said, uh, the term person in the Constitution only applies postnatally and therefore there uh, uh, is no protection in the Constitution, in the due process or equal protection clauses of the Constitution for unborn uh, human beings. In fact, Blackman seemed to suggest he wasn't even sure that the unborn were uh, human beings. Uh, he said that there was some great mystery as to when life began uh, or when life begins. Uh, that was ignorant. Uh, it was ignorant in 1973. <laughs> Even in 1973, everybody mm -hmm. uh, who knew anything about human embryogenesis and uh, intrauterine development uh, knew how life uh, begins. Uh, the leading textbooks of human embryology, modern human embryology, uh, are very clear on this. They were clear even uh, uh, 50 years ago, more than that, as a matter of fact. 
Um, but that was what Blackman uh, said, only to dismiss the idea that uh, the unborn were persons. But Professor Finnis and I decided that we'd actually do something Blackman hadn't done, which was look into the question, examine the scholarship in the question, look at the historical sources. And what we discovered, and I urge everyone to read our, our, our brief, which is available at the Supreme Court's website, uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll publish it to make it even more widely available. Um, what Professor Finnis and I discovered was that at the time of the ratification of the 14th Amendment, the very people who were ratifying the 14th Amendment knew and understood and held that children in the womb, human beings in the embryonic and fetal stages, were in fact persons. They did not draw a distinction between person and human being, something that, for example, my colleague Peter Singer does. He recognizes the biology in a way that Harry Blackman mm. didn't. Peter Singer right. knows that from the very earliest embryonic stage, uh, from the zygote and blastocyst stages forward, you have a human being. I mean, what else is it? Um, but Professor Singer draws a distinction between human being and persons, and he says that the unborn are not yet, per even the newborn, according to S Singer, this is why he uh, thinks that infanticide can be morally permissible, and euthanasia and killing severely cognitively disabled people. Um, he draws a distinction between human beings and persons, says some human beings are persons, some aren't. The unborn, newborn aren't yet persons, therefore abortion and, and infanticide are morally uh, permissible. But the ratifiers of the 14th Amendment, the framers of the 14th Amendment, held no such belief. They understood that all human beings are persons. So if that's true, then the original understanding of the 14th Amendment, the understanding that should be given effect by justices and judges who say that they are originalists, who believe that effect must be given to uh, the original understanding, the conclusion that has to be reached is the unborn are protected under the amendment and that states therefore have an obligation to accord to the unborn as much as mm. newborn, children and adolescents and adults, human beings in every condition and at every stage of development, the equal protection of the laws. Now that would not mean that uh, the Supreme Court had to entirely take over the subject of abortion law. It would mean, though, that elective abortions would be constitutionally impermissible. What to do in cases where there uh, is a genuine uh, threat to uh, maternal life or severe threat to maternal health in the case of a pregnancy uh, would remain a legislative uh, matter. I don't think the courts would have a basis in the Equal Protection Clause for drawing those sorts of uh, distinctions. But in the case of elective abortion, you just can't read a class of human beings' rights out of the uh, Constitution. Now, uh, if I can just say one more thing about that, uh, Rusty. Uh, our evidence is massive. If you look at the brief, uh, we adduce uh, legal cases, uh, the most prominent legal treatises, medical textbooks from the time. In fact, the, the campaign to strengthen the old common law prohibitions against abortion that go way back uh, was led by the American Medical Association. Mm -hmm. and it was led by the American Medical Association in light of the recent scientific confirmation that uh, human life, in fact, begins from the earliest embryonic stage. Um, prior to the 1820s, uh, we were still working 
uh, even in developed uh, countries, we were still working with a very outdated, outmoded, uh, imperfect um, understanding of biology. The old Aristotelian biology was still the most we, the best we had, and people uh, would therefore uh, unavoidably have to speculate about mm. what went on in the formation of the human being. Um, but in 1827, Carl von Baer discovered the mammalian ovum. And that launched modern human embryology. And in very short order, it became clear that human life begins with fertilization, fertilization of a, of a mammalian ovum by the um, spermatozoan of the same uh, species, uh, launching a gapless process, a self-directed process that is directed internally by the developing member of the species itself, in the case of the human species, the human, the human species, a human being. And there is no, uh, no truth to the old Aristotelian idea that, well, you know, in the beginning, there's a vegetative stage, and then mm. that moves to a, uh, a sensitive stage, and that then moves to a, uh, to a human or rational uh, stage. Uh, no, uh, you have a continuous gapless process from the very beginning. That's why I say even <laughs> as early as 1973, we knew, any educated person knew, uh, when the life of a new human being begins. This is not a scientific mystery. It wasn't that. It was prior to 1827. But once von Baer discovers the ovum, once you get the emergence of modern human embryology, once we get a, uh, a realistic understanding of human embryogenesis and early development, it's clear that you've got a human being uh, inside mom. It's, it's not some non-human thing that will later somehow got get transmogrified into being a human being. That's just scientifically outrageous and ignorant. Um, it's, it's a human being. And so the only question then is, are all human beings persons? Or are some persons and some not yet persons? Are some non-persons, at least for now, non-persons? And here's where the originalism kicks in. If you look at what people at the time actually believed and understood, they understood, I think this is morally correct, by the way, but lay aside my moral views, the point is they understood that all human beings are persons and no class of human beings is outside the protection of the due process and for most pertinently here, equal protection clauses of the constitution. So the argument here is that Blackman got it exactly opposite. Yeah. So it's not the case that the constitution provides a right for elective abortion to the contrary. The Constitution, properly understood, protects the life of the unborn and mandates that civil authority provide that proper protection. So well, That's exactly right. Uh, to his credit, he raised the question at the beginning of Roe, uh, but to <laughs> his shame, he did not yes. actually seriously investigate uh, the question. And uh, now we, building on the work of some wonderful uh, scholars over many years now, uh, Joseph Delapena, uh, John Keown, a uh, scholar named uh, Witherspoon, a uh, young man named Josh Craddock. Um, uh, it's now beyond real. It's really beyond any serious question. We'll link. We'll link to the. Um, we'll provide a link when we put up the podcast to the. Uh, to that. That's uh, great. Your brief. That would be. That'd be great. People need to know more about uh, how how radical and our abortion regime is as compared to many of these historical sources, people were much more sort of morally sensible. <laughs> well, thank you for your time. I really appreciate your coming on to the podcast. And I look forward 
to getting together in summer of 2022 and celebrating the overturning of Roe. Yes, uh, I uh, I certainly hope that I'm uh, proven right. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> right. But I'm pretty, uh, this time I'm pretty confident. Uh, Great. Rusty. They would have one devil of a time explaining, they being the justices, explaining how they could uphold the statute, which they seem clearly to be intending to do, how they could yes. explain upholding the statute while leaving Roe in, 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 in place. That's saying two plus two is seven. Yeah. Well, here's for two plus two being four. Four, as it always has been. (laughs) It always will be. All right. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye.